of Otto Bloom is the debut feature film from Australian filmmaker Chris Jones. After attending the VCA, Chris began collaborating with Academy Award-winning producer Melanie Coombs, and as you'll hear, the two have created quite a formidable creative partnership. Their film, The Death and Life of Otto Bloom, is set to be released for consumer purchase on August the 9th, and you can purchase the film on DVD as well as across all the digital platforms, including Foxtel On Demand, Google Play, Big Pond Movies, and iTunes. Now, assuming that you're going to be using iTunes to purchase The Death and Life of Otto Bloom, once you've selected your download, I'd implore you to click the drop-down menu and go from films to podcasts. You see where I'm going with this. Type in coming up next into the search tab, select this very podcast that you are listening to right now, and if you haven't already, hit subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and a great review. Tell your friends, they can do it too. It's a pretty average rhyme, but I know it seems crazy, um, but it really does help me to keep the momentum of the show going, uh, and it allows me to bring you guests who are doing amazing things in creative spaces like the director of The Death and Life of Otto Bloom, Chris Jones. How was the screening of your film on Sunday? It was really, it was really nice, actually. Like it, was the, it, it was the first time it screened in the UK, and I've got a lot of family over here. I'm originally from the UK, so it was nice. I went there with like, my cousins, and my brother lives out here as well. Um, he'd already seen it. Yeah, it was really nice. Nice screening and nice Q&A afterwards. I saw the film, um, The Death and Life of Otto Bloom. I saw it on, the, um, on my flight back to Melbourne recently. Everyone seems to see it on planes. I, I, it's, it's, this, it's this kind of recurring thing where anyone who's seen it, they saw it on a Qantas or a Virgin flight. And it's like, well, that's great. You know, like, I think more people saw it up in the air than they did you know, in the cinemas, but that's fine. Well, I mean, you, you're we're, we're in London right now. You know, you've, you've just had the screening. Was it was it on the flight when you came over here? No, it wasn't. It was on. Um, I flew to China. I flew to Beijing for the Beijing Film Festival uh, a few months ago, and it was on. It was on that flight, but I think it might have just finished because I think it started in March, so it was there for maybe March, April, May, and I think that was it. But. Uh, I imagine it would be quite a surreal experience to like, you know, come out of the bathroom on a long haul flight and you just see the back of the people's heads and your film on their little monitors. I did I did see someone watching it and that was that was kind of cool. I kind of looked over their shoulder for a bit cuz you know, it's you just want to kind of see what it I mean, I wouldn't sit there and watch it myself, but you kind of want to see what it looks like on those funny little <laughs> little screens and and you know, they're still there's still some screens which are still uh, four by three aspect ratio, which is is tricky for our film because it's got, you know, it's 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 got a lot of uh, different aspect ratios within it. But uh, yeah, four by three isn't ideal for it. <laughs> There's all kind of letterboxing and pillarboxing going on. Uh, conceptually, this film is quite mind-boggling, and there's certain it's like it's almost I found it's like you're constantly like you 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 get it. And then you go a little bit further forward and you kind of, uh, then there's another reveal and it's, you, you're kind of constantly wrapping your head around the next sort of moment in this really quiet, it's, it's almost like a, a modern day kind of mystery sort of uh, structure in a way. I'd love to talk to you about um, how you did sort of conceive of this and, and, um, and how the film sort of came into life, but I'd, I'd love to go back first to talk more about, you know, you and your life and how you, 
have arrived at this point where you're making this amazing feature film with Academy, an Academy Award winning producer and, uh, you know, just a top notch Australian cast. Um, I was reading in an article that you were interviewed in that, you know, you as a child used to um, make Super 8 films with, you know, family and cousins. I, I, I wondered if you remember the first time that you ever made a film or a show or something, you know, you wrote something or whatever, whatever that might have been. You know, it's, it's, it's funny actually being here because it all kind of started with, it started over here with the, the family I have here. My, uh, my family would come over here for trips and spend time with my aunt and uncle and cousins. And uh, before we made, before we started making films, we'd put on little entertainments, um, you know, to, it was like the, the four of us would put on a little show for the <laughs> for this probably long-suffering parents but um uh and that wasn't I mean I don't think there was a lot of original material in there I think you know we'd, we'd take sketches from Monty Python or, or what have you and and we'd dress up and do these do these little sketches and then eventually we started playing around with with um I mean I think there was there was a little bit of Super 8 but the, the it was really then video you know when uh video cameras came in and uh we'd edit these things in camera but we'd uh my (laughs) my cousin who was very into music he'd he would then put uh john williams scores he he was (laughs) we were both big collectors of soundtracks and and he'd put these wonderful you know indiana jones scores on our on our funny little films so they they sounded terrific they were epic yeah they were they were good they sounded it was this kind of incongruity really because they sounded really epic but you know it was about a film that where someone turns into a chair when they get angry it was (laughs) (laughs) i must see it again actually someone turns into a chair when they get angry that's right i played i played the the character who turns into a chair um his name was ernest gribbler right yeah why why a chair I don't know, because um, it's silly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why a chair. Maybe, I think what it is, is we had a chair. So It's pretty remarkable, I guess, you know, you, you think about the imagination of something like that, like how one could even sort of conceive of that idea. But I guess as a child, you have just this sort of unadulterated imagination. Yeah, it's it's kind of sad watching how that, you know it goes away and and it's something which I kind of feel I consciously have to you know um nurture and make sure it doesn't go away for too long the the imagination because I mean kids kids are incredible it is like you're you're born with with just so much so many I it's because everything's new I guess and 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 there is this amazing when you watch kids play this amazing imagination and then people become adults and become boring really quickly <laughs> and you know have to worry about boring stuff like money and and yeah it's a, it's an imagination killer <laughs> yeah having to make sort of safe choices in life mm. yeah which for some reason means diluting your imagination i guess yeah yeah and it, it kind of you know it can it, it kind of happens without without you noticing and you know it, it is this thing of uh like one of the joys of making making this this film recently was uh, discovering on the shoot that it's actually really fun. It's still fun, and it's still playing, and it's still um, you know it's stressful and it's a lot of hours and it's a lot of responsibility, but you know none of that really interferes with you know. I think I got lucky with a great cast and great crew, and you know we were all there having a good time and and that kind of surprised me and reassured me that, yeah, I do actually want to do this, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so was that something that you sort of took with you through, you know, school and high school years? Were your parents supportive of your pursuits or was it something that you more came to when you finished high school? No, it kind of, um, it kind of, I mean, it was really high school that I got into it. I started doing, um, I was very into drama at school and I was also doing plays. Um, started off doing, you know, just kind of the local amateur theatre stuff and then it became kind of co-op theatre. So it was, you know, it was kind of really nice because this fun thing I was doing after school 
I was actually making a teeny bit of money from as well. And uh, and and at school, meanwhile, I, I we we would a group of friends and I would make these little funny films to get out of writing essays. So mm-hmm. so for English, instead of writing an essay on Jane Austen's Emma, we'd make a little film where we travel back to uh, we and we'd we'd kind of do ridiculous things like shoot stuff on a blue screen and and put ourselves into the film of Emma. And we were, you know, in the end, we'd maybe kill off Mr. Knightley or something. And they were all completely stupid. But I think the teachers were so entertained by them, they didn't really notice the fact that we hadn't read the book. And, and yeah. so we'd actually get really good good marks just for effort and, I guess, doing something different. Yeah, well, I, I suppose you probably... It would have required a lot more effort to put something like that together than to write an essay yeah more effort but it was also play you know it's that thing of play and um yeah so we do those things and then at some point I had this amazing drama teacher called uh her name was Kim Boaz and I decided at some point that I didn't want to do drama I didn't want to be an actor and and so I kind of met with her and and she'd always been so supportive and and such a kind of big inspiration for me um and I said oh look I, I I don't really want to do this going into years 11 and 12 and she said oh well look at look at the syllabus because there might be something there that isn't acting that you might like to do and one of the things there you could do as your final project you can make a short film and I thought oh well you know that's kind of what I'd be doing anyway so I'll do that and and I guess that was kind of that was the first thing I did, kind of, you know, I wrote it and directed it um, by myself and it wasn't, you know, it was, I mean, it's completely silly now, but <laughs> at the time I thought it was a very serious, important <laughs> film. Piece of auteur. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I thought I was kind of, uh, you know, the new Polanski or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, that was kind of, I guess, the start of it for me deciding oh there is this thing which is writing and directing which is you know the main thing I've done since yeah were your parents supportive of the pursuit or did they want you to do something else as like a, a fallback that was a word I, I heard a lot in my uh, 18 19 year olds yeah right I was I was actually really lucky in that I had you know completely supportive parents my my mum was an actress um so you know she was always very encouraging of that, and my dad was a was a, a computer engineer, which is you know it's a weird <laughs> combination of vocations. And but they were just yeah they were always really supportive. I never felt. I mean, what I did after high school is I I couldn't really afford to go to film school. It seemed like a very expensive thing to do, so I, I just started a degree for the sake of starting a degree, and I. You know, I dropped out after one semester because I just wasn't going to classes, and it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. And they were very—I was very nervous about that dropping out of uni. But they were very supportive of that. Um, in the meantime, I'd been working at a at a cinema, and that then became a full time job um, when I dropped out of uni. And this was in Sydney. This was in Sydney. It was in um, Parramatta. So the cinema was this lovely old Art Deco cinema called the the Roxy which isn't around anymore. And it was a beautiful old cinema that it really needed someone to come along and put a bit of money into it and give it, you know, show it a bit of love and do it up and, and show, you know, more art house films, I think is, is what it should have been, but it was owned by village and we'd kind of get the films that, that no one else, that the, the other village cinema up the, up the street at the shopping mall that no one wanted to show there. So we'd show a lot of bad films, but <laughs> but then occasionally, you know, I'd have a word with the manager, and you know, she'd go and get being John Malkovich for us to show a Fight Club or something like that, and that was that was nice. Yeah, there was a similar, or there is a similar cinema in Melbourne, the Rivoli, which I worked at. Oh right, that's um, a village too. Yeah, it's village. Yeah, okay. I, I worked at the worst village in in Melbourne. I worked at the one at Crown Casino. Oh right. Yeah. <laughs> I also did a stint at uh, a jam factory too. Oh right. Okay. Well, that's yeah. not bad, is it? I mean, they show some good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's about as mainstream as a village cinema gets, I think. Yeah, the Rivoli. I think I've only seen one film. I think I saw Straight Story there. Right. 
Um, but I think that's a nice cinema, isn't it? It's, it's very nice, um, but it's that same kind of art deco. I think it's probably a bit more mainstream now, but back then it was much more like, you know, the kind of art house, European sort of cinema that you wouldn't get in. I, I think they... I think they called it Cinema Europa or something. That's right. That I remember that. I remember that. I'd always see Cinema Europa. I thought, what's that? Yeah. Sounds arty. I think they had like <laughs> at Jam Factory, there were like two dedicated Cinema Europa cinemas. And then the Rivoli was like a whole Cinema Europa cinema. Right. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. I think you, and you got it, you, you paid like a membership. It's kind of like Palace Cinemas or something. And um, you get like discounted tickets or something. Right. Old people loved it. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it is. It is that, that. Yeah, old people loved the cinema I worked at as well. You'd you'd look out on a busy night, and it would just be a sea of grey in the audience <laughs> coming to see this new Brad Pitt film called Fight Club. Oh yeah, <laughs> risque. Yeah. Uh, so, when did you make the decision to move to Melbourne and and um, try your hand at the VCA? I think it was after dropping out of. Um, uni and I said oh, I really want to do film and I, I, I'd had one of these um, kind of weird uh, kind of uh, serendipitous things happen to me when you know schoolies week that thing um, when that was on I kind of thought well I don't want to go and you know I've spent six years with these people from high school I don't want to go and spend time with them so I went off camping <laughs> by myself um, and I went camping at Mile Lakes Reserve, which is this beautiful uh, national park in New South Wales. And I was, I, I had my, my old bomb of a car and, and I was waiting to get onto a ferry to cross this river and get to the other side. And I just bumped into this, um, I think I was reading a book on a filmmaker. I can't remember what book it was, but this old guy came up to me and I've gotten, I've never found out who this guy was. But he noticed the book I was reading and he said, oh, are you interested in film? And I said, yeah, I, I really am. And he said, oh, you know, you should go to the, the VCA film school. And it was the first time I'd heard of it. And I, he used to work there in some capacity. And I've, when I was at VCA, I asked around and I, I could never work out who this guy was. But um, <laughs> just some mysterious old uh, Yoda-like figure. Yeah, he really was. Um, he actually looked quite a bit like Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, <laughs> you know, and then he just kind of we got on the ferry, crossed over, and parted ways, and and that was, and that was it. And I kind of think, gosh, what would have happened if, if I'd gone to school this week? <laughs> yeah, know, I may have never gone to film school. <laughs> yeah. So you moved to Melbourne, sort of set up shop. That's there. right. Yeah. So I, I worked for, you know, the, um, at the cinema for the rest of that year, straight out of high school, I worked full time, you know, went from selling tickets to being a projectionist and, um, and then, yeah, that, that the start of the new year went down to VCA. Um, you know, I'd had that very nerve wracking interview the, the year before and managed to get in. And, uh, yeah, as soon as I went, actually, when I went down for the interview to Melbourne, I'd never been to Melbourne before. And it was one of those things where I just completely fell in love. It fell in love with the city. And I thought, well, even if I don't get into film school, I'm going to move to Melbourne because this is such a cool place. So, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where, you know, sometimes in life you just get the feeling that you're, you know, you're barking up the right tree, you know, that you're on yeah. the right track and... And it was definitely one of those for me. Do you, do you find that you are an intuitive sort of person in that way? I think, um, you know, I, 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 I think when I'm at my best, I am. And it's something, you know, it seems like a stupid thing to say, but sometimes you have to kind of really work at being intuitive and at just following your instincts and listening to you know the little the little voice um rather than overthinking things um <laughs> but i think with all the you know when i look at all the the things in life where i kind of feel well, that was the right choice or that was you know something positive that happened it, it never it never came about by thinking about anything too long you know i think you know it, it is that thing of you know we were talking earlier about children having this imagination but uh 
you know, I, I think they also, you know, act completely on instinct and, uh, yeah, it's always just that thing for me of, of, of trying to, yeah, trying to follow the intuition rather than overthink things because I tend to overthink everything. Yeah, I think there's something in us creatives um, that tends to be super neurotic and it's almost like you don't trust your gut. Mm. So you got to overthink everything until you come back around to that realization again. And and may, maybe it's a thing of because we, you know, when you, you know, uh, work in a creative field or live in a creative field, maybe it's because you're, you know, so much, you're putting so much of your gut and your instinct into the actual creativity that uh, yeah, maybe it's a muscle that just, uh, you know, is, is, is kind of already overused in that department. Maybe that's got something to do with it. I don't know. Yeah. So while you were at VCA, what was the kind of journey for you through through that and to really honing your craft as a filmmaker? Well, I, I was a terrible student. I've always been a really terrible student. So when I look back at VCA, it was, I mean, it was the best course for me because um, it was that thing of writing, directing and editing your own thing, which, which is, it's really not for everyone. Like when you, when you look at, um, when you look at the way the industry works, it, it seems strange that uh, there'd be a film school which, which has this kind of thing where you write and direct because it's, it's actually quite, quite rare, you know, in the real world. Um, but it just happened to be perfect for me. Um, that's what I'd been doing anyway, and that's what I've done since. And, you know, the best thing about film school was the, you know, and they say this at the time and and you kind of go oh yeah and you don't really understand it but it, it's it's the people you're studying with it's your peers um they're the people you learn from you know they're the the friends you make who you know in many cases you're going to end up working with for many years to come and it was all about making the films for me i i kind of uh i i wish i could go back and actually pay more attention in classes but I was really just there to make to make films, and and that was, uh, you know, I certainly got what I wanted out of it. But uh, yeah, I wish I'd been maybe a bit more, a bit more diligent as well. <laughs> yeah, I can I can relate to that as well. It's a, an interesting conversation piece that I have with people about the notion of sort of getting a practical experience versus going to film school. Because I'm sure there are merits in both, but what the sort of biggest argument I think for going to film school is the people that you meet, absolutely, the, the teachers and the students. And I think particularly now, I mean, certainly when I went to film school, which you know it was, it kind of feels like the dark ages now. It, <laughs> but it was, um, you know, that was the only chance to work with film. You know, this is before it was even before the first digital intermediate film had come out. So it was all about film and if you were just doing stuff on video it didn't feel you know it didn't feel it felt amateurish it didn't feel like the real thing and so you know at the time I thought this is why I'm here it's to work with film and of course in retrospect it wasn't about that at all it was about those relationships and I, I think you know the uh, the argument for going to film school I think it's it's not as strong as it was when it was about getting access to equipment and stuff, because now, you know, anyone can make a film on their phone. But yeah, how else do you do you kind of find that network? I don't know. I mean, maybe there is a, maybe there are kind of forums for that, but uh, there's nothing like, you know, spending three years with a bunch of people, you know, full time together. Yeah. Mm. Do you find, uh, or have you found that you still in contact with those networks yeah um it's really funny i the people in my year i don't see that much of and you know a lot of them kind of i guess went off and did other things a lot of them move um overseas um you know a very close friend of mine was someone who was in my year at film school and, and he actually worked on on this uh on the death and life of otto bloom this film we just made so that's that's really nice, and you know that's that's one of those, you know, 
lasting friendships where you just know, you know, friends for life kind of thing. But then there's there's also a whole bunch of people, you know, in different years, um, you know, certainly in years after my year who kind of came up and, you know, I've kind of gotten to know those people uh, quite a bit, but, you know, didn't know them at film school, but there's still that kind of, you know, shared background, I guess. Yeah, there's a real sort of camaraderie and almost tribal sort of mentality about it all. There is, I think. There is. And I think it is just that thing of you kind of, um, if someone says they went to VCA, I mean, you automatically know so much about what their background and what their experience is because you've done it because it's such a kind of specific thing to do. When I, you know, when I meet people who didn't go to film school I'm you know I, I kind of bombard them with questions because I'm <laughs> I'm fascinated with you know how they got started and you know what their path was because it's all a, a mystery to me are there any sort of uh, recurring things that people say well it just it just seems to be you know it feels that people who didn't go to film school I think they tend to be really proactive people like uh for me I know I really I really benefited from this structure of having to make you know three short films a year for three years I kind of as much as I love to break rules and bend rules and things I actually I you know I I I'm someone who loves to rail against an institution (laughs) but I you know I really love the institution because it's it gives me something to kind of uh rail against I guess but also it gives me a kind of discipline which you know for me it's a hard work to kind of have self-discipline whereas some people seem really good at it and I think those are the people who kind of really thrive and and maybe don't need film school yeah going out there and doing it I guess Mm. so how did you and Melanie Coombs come to be working together well that I mean this is a, a really long and you know lovely friendship that we've had when I was in my first year of film school she came to talk she gave a lecture to us and basically explained what it is that a producer does because that's something that you don't really learn in in certainly at the VCA film school um I think it's probably changed now because there is a producing course but there wasn't at the time and um and so she'd kind of come in and sit us down and explain you know the (laughs) why producers are so are so important and what they do and because there's many you know misconceptions about you know the job of a of a producer and it was this really inspiring lecture of course that she gave us and then um at the end of that first year I'd made my final you know film for the year um which was this uh silly little film called the the Heisenberg principle and Melanie was one of the um outside assessors who was brought into you know, watch our films and grade us. And she was really kind about the film I'd made and, and got in touch with me. And What was the premise of the film? The premise of the film was, it was kind of a, a, a weird little take on the whole Schrodinger's cat thing. So there was, right. a, there was a guy waiting by the side of a road in the middle of nowhere. And he had no memory of, of how he got there. And the one thing... He had was this this box which may or may not contain a cat, and <laughs> it was kind of about his his relationship, I guess, with this this potentially existent, potentially non-existent cat. It was very silly, but but quite a bit of fun. Uh, I've, you know, I was kind of I've always been slightly obsessed with the philosophical ramifications of, of science, and so you know, Schrodinger's cat coming from um, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle was. You know, I thought there was there was a little film in there, but uh, yeah. So so she, she kind of responded to that, and we met up, and and uh, you know we talked about working together at some point in the future, and then you know she was always very supportive and kind of a, a mentor to me, and I could always go to her for advice, and and then eventually we made we ended up in two thousand and eight making a short film together, which was called The Funk. And then after that, you know, the the idea was to make a, a feature, and it only took us eight years after that <laughs> to do that. That's a standard sort of life of a feature in Australia, right? It is, it is, yeah. 
There was another feature that you were trying to get off the ground as well um, that got very close. That's right. So that eight years, I mean, most of that eight years was spent on this other project, which was called variously uh, Byzantium and uh, Midnight in Byzantium, because another film called Byzantium came out in the meantime. And yeah, we worked on that for a long time. and, And a large part of that time was, you know, I was learning how to write a long form thing I think I thought it was just you know if you can write a short film you can write a feature and it's completely different completely different kettle of fish so I was kind of learning about structure and everything and um, so it kind of took us a while to get there and but then we had a really great cast attached and um, it really looked like it was all going to go ahead and then unfortunately yeah kind of the last at the last minute we didn't we didn't get the funding we were hoping for, so it was, um, I think I had, you know, a few days of, of despair and then kind of sat down to write the film that became Otto Bloom. And, and you know, that process actually went, making Otto happen very quickly. It was written quickly, it was financed quickly, it was made very quickly. But um, I kind of think, well, all those other years on that other project, it's all kind of, it's time invested in this, so... Um, yeah, there's no kind of separation, I think, between the two. I don't think... I think the creative process is always just an evolving yeah. process. It's, there's never time wasted if you're sort of actively engaged in it. That's right, that's right. And, you know, so much of... I mean, I always say that Otto Bloom, it was the, the phoenix that rose from the ashes of this other project because there's so much... Um, you know, the other project kind of dealt with time in a different way, but it was still... It was still kind of um, an examination of time in a way. And when that project collapsed, I just, uh, I think I thought, well, there's this, there's this thing that I want to somehow put in a film. And, you know, if I can come up with a story that's maybe, you know, is, isn't going to require quite as much of a budget, uh, maybe we can, we can get it made. And, uh, yeah, that, that all kind of... It was all kind of, ever since then, you know, it's all been a bit of a, a whirlwind. Um, it's all happened quite quickly. But, uh, yeah, now there's a film. So. Now there's a film. <laughs> and you've just screened it in London. Yes. Um, what was the, before we go into, into that process, what was, I guess, you know, there was, what, what year did you finish at the VCA? Oh, gosh, so long ago. I think I, I graduated in 2003. Okay. Um, yeah. So I guess between 2003 and 2016, when you did roll cameras, or even the sort of previous years of, of getting the other film up off the ground, what were what was kind of keeping you going and keeping you afloat as a as a creative, but also just in terms of sustaining a life? I kind of made a lot of mistakes. I you know because I th- I think when I at the time when I graduated. Um, the short film I graduated with um, was really doing um, quite well at festivals and stuff and you know it kind of feels like I didn't understand it at the time but that was probably the time where I had you know that little bit of heat which uh, is a terrible word but people use it <laughs> and um, and rather than in any way capitalizing on that I, I, I kind of went off and traveled and backpacked around Europe and uh, and worked on organic farms and had these, you know, wonderful experiences, which, you know, I don't regret at all. But it was this funny thing where, you know, when I kind of came back, it was really starting over from, from scratch. And uh, I did various things along the way. I, I, you know, I did a bit of work at the VCA. I did quite a bit of editing work. I also did a few music videos and, and ads and things. And... It reached a point, at some point I moved to Paris and I was doing ads very briefly over there and it was just one of those experiences where I was doing ads because I needed the money and as a result I wasn't choosing things which were, you know, I, th- I think there's, there's, it's easy to be cynical about doing ads but I think, you know, it's it's an amazing way of you know, continuing to learn and to hone your craft and and just have more experience on set. I, I think it's a really 
you know it's a it's a great thing to do if you can if you can get the work but um when you're taking jobs that you know are going to be terrible just because you need the money it's never going to end well and um and I just ended up quite burnt and you know it was that thing of I'd, I'd without noticing I'd stopped enjoying what I was doing and so I made the decision to go back to Melbourne and and try to make a short film which uh yeah Melanie ended up producing and it was a weird little film that was done entirely on on stills I thought that was a way of uh, doing something kind of quite cheaply. Um, I was a big fan of uh, La Jete, the Chris Marker film, which was all done on stills, and and I was just interested with, you know, all the technology that had developed since then, you know, what we could do, you know. So it was about taking stills and then using various techniques to animate those. And, uh, yeah, and, and that was kind of... I, that was kind of when I felt I was kind of back on track for the first time since film school, I was doing something that, that I really enjoyed. So that was, that was the first, what was that? Five years after film school, I guess was, was all quite random and strange. And, and then after 2008, it was, uh, you know, it's just been about trying to get a feature up and it was that one project first. And then this one that we eventually got up, but a lot of it was me, you know, sitting in a room writing and, uh, you know, responding to development notes and things and, and just that whole kind of learning curve. But by the time I ended up making the film, I hadn't directed anything for nearly 10 years. So, um, you know, that was slightly daunting. Yeah. And uh, it was just really nice to, you know, I think, I think the good thing about having not had, you know, terribly much experiences at that point was um, I made sure I was really prepared and preparation goes, you know, a long way. So it ended up going really smoothly and I discovered that, yeah, I still, I still enjoy this thing. So hopefully it won't be quite so long in between uh, before the next one. Yeah. <laughs> Touch wood. So what was the process like once you did have this script in hand and Melanie was on board to help produce it? What was the process of uh, sort of getting it to a shooting level and then the actual production. Yeah, so like I said, it all happened pretty quickly. I think we did, I did, I did a treatment and we got one round of funding from Screen Australia. We, I think, both decided that, and also, you know, with the other, because there's two other producers on this film, uh, Mish Armstrong and Alicia Brown. And, um, you know, I think we decided we'll just do one round of development and then let's, let's make a film so you know it, I think it took me maybe six months to get a draft out there I think I might be wrong with this but I think it took about six months to finance and all that time I was just kind of honing that draft um, you know up until the you know even when we were shooting I was still kind of busily you know doing rewrites in my spare time but uh, yeah, it was all quite it was all quite quick, and and we shot over the summer, which is it's quite an odd time to shoot over the Christmas break. I think we had, had I think we'd started shooting before Christmas, and then we broke for Christmas, and then kind of resumed from there. Um, and we shot for three weeks, uh, with an additional week for the um, the film users these uh, talking head interviews, and that was kind of a separate shoot in a way with a, a real minimal minimal crew. And I can't remember how many weeks the edit was, but it was a very, very quick edit as well. So it was, like I say, it was all, it was all a whirlwind. And, you know, before we'd finished the film, we found out that we were going to open the Melbourne International Film Festival. So, you know, there was a very strict deadline for getting the film finished. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, it was. It was, it was really cool. Yeah. How did you conceive of the premise for the, for the film? So the, the film is, it's basically the, it tells the story of, uh, the the main character Otto Bloom, who's someone who uh, experiences time in reverse. So he's not actually you know aging in reverse or anything. He he he's just like the rest of us, but his consciousness, where, whereas our consciousness seems to be moving forward through time, his is going backwards. So he, as a result, remembers future events, but has no knowledge of the past. So his first memory is like of basically his death and his last memory is of his birth. That's right. And, and so his, his death kind of becomes his birth 
and vice versa. And yeah, so the, the germ of the idea was, it, it all kind of boils down to, there's a quote from Einstein in the film, which is, he wrote this uh, letter of consolation to the family of a friend of his who'd passed away saying, uh, you know, those of us who understand physics know that, you know, that know that he's not really gone because time is an illusion. And so basically I'm completely paraphrasing because I can't even remember the quote now, but it's in the film. But the idea being that, you know, all every moment in time is, is actually all happening at once. And, and the, the way we perceive time as being this kind of slow moving forward is, is actually just an illusion and it's a kind of limitation of human consciousness in a way. And that was the thing, that was the idea, which for me, uh, I thought there was a lot of consolation in that idea. Um, you know, anyone who's, you know, lost someone they love uh, or, or even, you know, had a, a relationship end, you know, it's a very sad thing. And to think that, you know, particularly if someone has died, to think that somewhere out there in time, all of your happy memories are still with that person are still unfolding. Um, it's kind of a, I don't know, for, for me, there was a lot of comfort to, to be gained from that. And so that, that was what I wanted to somehow tell, get well convey in a story. And I, I, kind of, I was kind of looking at ways of, well, if time is an illusion, you know, what, what's a way of kind of demonstrating this? And I thought, you know, I've always got a thing of, uh, you know, if I get too used to looking at something, like if I'm in an edit, uh, editing a film, there's a point where you've just seen it a million times and you can't really see the wood for the trees anymore. Um, there's a thing where I look at it in a mirror or if you can flip the monitor and look at it backwards, it, it's just a way of kind of seeing things fresh. And I think I had that on my mind. And I thought, well, what if someone has the opposite illusion to us? And, you know, even though all every moment is in time is happening at once, this person is perceiving time as, as going backwards. And that was kind of the the initial idea and everything else just kind of grew from there. This is getting this is getting really confusing, isn't it? I'm not explaining it very well. No, no, I'm 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 with you, but I okay. mean I have, I have seen the film so I <laughs> so I do understand. But no, it's 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 very interesting and I guess one of the things that fascinates me and that I loved about this film is that it is a kind of departure from, you know, uh superficial cinema. It's a really kind of thought-provoking and challenging film and I don't mean challenging like in terms of uh, being deeply political or anything like that but challenging on a on a philosophical level yeah yeah it's it's you know I, I had a lot of people especially after the opening night of myth people coming up to me saying oh I saw your film last night I've still got a headache and I was always like oh is that a is that a good headache I hope that's a good headache but I guess it is, It is. you do have to kind of use that muscle when you're watching it a bit, I guess. It was also a, you know, it was a, a challenge for me. You know, no one is ever on the same level watching a film. There's always going to people going to be people who are slightly ahead of you and people who are slightly behind. So it's about walking that tightrope of making sure you, you do explain everything, but that you, that you don't also over-explain. And that was the thing, you know, I was juggling with that in the, in the writing and, you know, all the way down to the editing. It's like, do we, do we need this line to explain this? And, you know, you're never going to get it right for everyone, but you just try to hit it somewhere in the middle, I guess. Yeah. And the film has got uh, an extraordinary cast and is told in a really um, a great way, sort of almost as a, a retrospective on... Um, on his life in this kind of uh, on this documentary fashion mm. in the way that it's sort of pieced together. What was it like sort of constructing the film in that way and then also working with people like Xavier Samuel and Rachel Ward and Matilda Brown, these sort of great actors? Yeah, we really lucked out with the, with the cast. Um, Xavier was on board very early on, uh, before there was even a script actually. He'd, he'd been attached to this... 
other project which we didn't get up and so when there was just a I think a 15 page outline I wrote we sent it to him and and he uh, was nice enough to kind of attach himself to the project on the strength of that which then you know made getting the film financed so much easier and with Rachel and Matilda that was that was really uh they were cast very close to the to the shoot we were kind of it was getting quite desperate um to find the right because even though it's called the death and life of Otto Bloom it's really uh you know, Rachel and Matilda, they play the same character at different, uh, at different stages in life. And really that character of Ada is the, is the protagonist of the film and, and the, uh, the character that we kind of follow and, and the heart and soul of the film. And it was just a real challenge to, you know, it was such an important role and we didn't just have to cast one person, we had to cast two people who could, you know, realistically you know be the same character at two different points and it was proving very hard to do and it was just uh I just it was just one of those brain waves um as we were getting really close to the line I th- I'd thought of Rachel very early on actually for the film but I just thought she wouldn't be interested in in doing it um because I'd read so many interviews with her um saying that she had no interest in acting ever again um I, I think she hadn't acted for nine years and of course she's had this amazing career as a, as a really wonderful director and so I, I just I, we didn't even approach her because I didn't think she'd be interested and and then at some point I, I remembered seeing this short film that uh, Rachel had directed with Matilda in it uh, called Martha's New Code and it just kind of hit me that wow this if we could get both of them that's that would be the ideal casting and and yeah I, fortunately they uh they really liked the script and I met with Rachel and she was absolutely such a uh, lovely person and you know the most you know one of the most intelligent people I've ever met and but also so warm and uh generous and yeah I, I think I, I met with her it was we were already doing the kind of the the final kind of location scouts and things so it was very close to the line and yeah it was it was the happiest day of my life when she agreed to do it because <laughs> at that point it kind of felt like we might have to push the shoot back or you know we didn't know what was going to happen so it was terrific yeah yeah and um i'm not sure if that's answered your question that's answered part of your question hasn't it but i can't remember the other half about um <laughs> The way that you chose to execute yes okay so yeah it was, it was kind of um it's an odd one in that uh, you know it, i decided you know very early on um in the process that the only way to tell this film was kind of to use the the documentary format i i don't really like calling it a mockumentary because that tends to suggest um i think a, a more like a comedy and maybe something a bit more broad and although I like those films very much, you know, this is, it's basically a, a drama and a love story. There's, there's, there's jokes in there, there's humor in there, but it's not, um, it's not a genre piece. No, it's kind of, uh, you know, the big influence is Errol Morris. Um, I've always been a massive, uh, fan of his documentaries and it was an odd film for me as well, because I, I kind of feel, you know, I kind of had a particular style in the short films I'd made, which, you know, I, I didn't get to really exercise as much in this because we were doing it as if it was a, an Errol Morris documentary. So it was a lot of stealing his tricks. And um, I just thought that would be an interesting kind of collision with, you know, this somewhat fantastic material, but to kind of play it straight and see what happens. And, uh, yeah, it's... I guess it makes it a bit of an a bit of an unusual film in that way, but uh, it was a lot of um, you know it was a lot of fun because we were shooting um, half of the film is kind of these interviews in the present day of people looking back on Otto's life and that was all done with the actors talking into camera but we did the full Errol Morris thing of he's got this technique that he calls the interrotron. Do you know about this? No. It's this thing where he's when you watch his films the the interview subjects seem to be looking right down the barrel so they're talking straight to you and it's really impactful and really cinematic and really intimate 
And what it actually is, is they are looking at a screen which has Errol Morris's face on it. So they're making that <laughs> eye contact with him. Right. And it's using technology a bit like a autocue, I guess. Um, so the camera's shooting through this screen at them. And we did all that. Um, we, we kind of got that all set up, which just makes it so much easier for the actors to... Uh, in this case, they were talking to um, a wonderful actor named Trudy Hellier, who was so kind as to be the you know, the off-screen interviewer in the film. And then the other half of the film is all kind of, uh, you know, kind of fake archive footage. So there's, we shot a lot of Super 8 and we shot a lot of analog video and it was, it, it was a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's much more, you know, the new, like we, sh the, the interviews were shot on the Alexa and some of the dramatizations were shot on the Alexa, which because I'm a bit old-fashioned, it really does feel like a computer with a lens on the front. You yeah. know, I, I kind of like the sound of film clicking through a camera, so I enjoyed, especially doing the Super 8. It was, it was really fun to do that for real. It was great. Take you back to your days as a projectionist. Yeah, it, it really does, you know. And when I was a projectionist, I, I, I was the one who, you know, we'd, I'd change all the ads on a, on a Wednesday, and I was the one who could kind of cut the film. And um, so it was that it did bring me back to that experience a lot yeah yeah calluses on your index finger and it, yes yes you know well. <laughs> <laughs> um and so what was the i guess the day-to-day -day kind of realities of, of of shooting in those sort of two quite contrasting ways well we kind of shot in two blocks so we shot the um all the stuff that happened all, all the archive footage all the stuff basically with xavier and matilda um we shot first and it was a lot of, it's one of these things, you know, you, you learn so many lessons, uh, especially on your first film, but, you know, I designed this film very specifically to be able to be done on a low budget. And the one thing I hadn't really thought about is that every scene is kind of set in a different location. So there's so much, yeah. there's so much location hopping, which is something I'd always done in short films. And I, I can't believe I, ha I hadn't learned the lesson. I think the next <laughs> thing I do is going to be all in one location because, uh, you know, you're trying to put all the money up on the screen, but really it's just going on moving from one place to another. So there was a lot of that, but, you know, it was kind of fun because it, it, uh, we'd turn up at one place and shoot on Super 8 and then we'd hop over to another part of town and shoot on video. So it kind of felt, it was very spontaneous and fun. And then the uh, shooting the, the interviews was really intense because we were, in the case of Rachel, we were shooting 10 pages of monologue a day which is crazy and she was incredible in that she had learnt all of her lines which you know it's most people in a normal film don't have 30 pages of you know if you put all their dialogue together it's not 30 pages but she'd memorized all of this and it's all monologue so you're not getting kind of lines to to feed each line and she just kind of burnt through it and we we did it in three days and but it was very exhausting. It was exhausting for Rachel and it was exhausting for, for me because there is just no time between setups because essentially it's, you know, we did maybe three or four setups, you know, just varying shot sizes and things. But apart from that, you, you know, it's all that, all that waiting that you normally hate in, uh, when people are setting up in a film. I was kind of missing that. I was yeah. missing those little breaks. Yeah, it was good though. It was fun. It's amazing. And then you, how long was the post-production process? You know, I, I'm really bad with time, so I can't remember. I can remember that it was very short and, um, you know, there is a very big post element in the film. Like there's a lot of motion graphics and, you know, there's a lot of newspaper articles and things which are then, you know, we put little virtual camera moves on them and things. And all of these things had to be, all of these newspapers had to be made and the art department did this incredible job. You know, a lot of their work continued into post, which is quite unusual, I think. So it was kind of managing all of these different elements, which when you add them all up, it's, it's a good chunk of the film. And then that was kind of the, my night job was, was kind of keeping on top of all of that. And then the day job was, was editing. So it was a really intense period with with not much sleep and you know when the weekend came around it wasn't about oh cool I can have a couple of days off it was just about trying to get 
you know back on track so that on Monday you're, you're kind of where you need to be because there was just there was just so much work and so little time so yeah it was uh I think I aged <laughs> a few years in, in 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 what was probably a couple of months how how significant is it do you think as a director uh to be writing your own material and also as a kind of further point to that if you are or you aren't writing your own material to be editing your own material well i didn't edit this this film so the editor was um was uh bill murphy who's a terrific editor and it's the first time i've actually worked with an editor i've always done my own stuff and and it's it was great we got on like a like a house on fire and we've also got very very different styles i there's something i guess not in a negative way but there's something my style is maybe a bit more mechanical and his style is is more intuitive and it was it was a nice it was one of those kind of nice collisions of of styles because when you're working with you know and particularly for me because I'd uh, never worked with an editor before and was used to doing it by myself you kind of want someone to come in with you know a very different style and to challenge you know what your instinct is and it really added a lot to the film and in terms of writing and directing for me I've always kind of seen it as just because I've I've never directed anything that I haven't written and I've never written anything that I haven't directed I've always kind of seen you know it as one job and you know it's kind of the the directing is and also the editing it's kind of an extension of of the writing I've always seen it as that one thing which isn't to say that I wouldn't be interested in directing someone else's material or or even have someone else direct something I've written I mean I'm 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 kind of really open to that because I think it would be fascinating but I think my default is to be that yeah writer director for better or worse <laughs> <laughs> well the film has uh, already lived quite an extraordinary life um and I and I hope that it continues to do so what are the plans from here in terms of uh, it, its continued release yeah, well, it's it's still it's still um, playing at a few festivals, and hopefully that continues. You know, it's it's been out for a year now, so there's kind of you know these film these things do have a limited lifespan. So, but hopefully there'll be a few more. It's also um, yeah, it got released in Australia in March, and it's coming out on DVD and everything else. However, else people watch films <laughs> um, in on August the eighth, I think. It's also getting a, a theatrical release in Switzerland, which um, I'm kind of fascinated about. That's um, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think I'll be able to go, but um, it seems to be getting, you know, quite a quite a big release there. So that's kind of exciting. Um, I, I'm not sure. I watched the trailer, actually, the Swiss trailer the other day, and, of course, they speak three languages in Switzerland, so there's three yeah. sets of subtitles. And... You know, that's kind of fascinating to me because it's a very, very talking, talky film. So there's going to be a whole lot of text on the screen. <laughs> I'd be really interested to see that. Yeah. But yeah, that's kind of exciting. And, you know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it might get distribution in a few other places. We'll just wait and see, I guess. It's very exciting. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much, man, for, uh, for coming and chatting with me at my Dalston pad. Ah, oh, it's fantastic. It's a great pad. It's, I'm sorry to hear you'll be moving out. I am also sorry to, uh, to be departing this, this great place. I finish all of, my, uh, all of my podcasts with the same question, and that question, uh, which is a word that you used earlier to describe your, uh, your Super 8 film, uh, is what makes you silly. What makes me silly? Well, I think, I think, you know, for me, silliness is a good gauge of, of how kind of happy and fulfilled you are in life. If, you, if you're being silly, I think you're on the right track. And uh, what makes me silly, though? Gosh. You know, one of my favourite... Um, it's kind of a boring answer because it's a film, but one of my favourite films is uh, Richard Lester's film Help, the Beatles film, which is the silliest film I've ever seen. And... Yeah. It's silliness makes me happy, so I don't know if that's a that's a good answer, but maybe it also reminds me to be silly and not to take things too seriously. So, 
Yeah, I'll go with Richard Lester's help. That right. makes me silly. <laughs> it's very easy to uh, to fall into a trap of earnestness, I think. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And I hope I haven't done that today because I think, uh, yeah, there's, um, my, <laughs> my instinct is to be silly, but in interview situations, it, yeah, yeah, you can kind of become a bit too earnest for your own good, I think. So apologies if that happened. No, I think this has been uh, fairly irreverent. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you.